Good morning. Good morning, good morning, everybody. Welcome. I'm Pastor Bruce. If we've not met yet, good to see you here and also online. Thank you for joining us this morning. And as others come in, make sure they feel right at home. And um, we have a service today at 3 o'clock for Lawrence Weaver, Larry Weaver. Um, I just wanted to let you know that we expect the temperatures in here to be in the 90s, maybe even 100. So use good judgment about uh, coming or, or hanging out or bringing your own ice cubes, whatever you want to do. Uh, but we're going to celebrate Jesus Christ and to give God thanks and praise for his goodness to us in Jesus. So we'd like to begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God, it is a delight to come into your house this morning and to give you praise and to worship you and to enjoy, Lord God, your living presence here together. We're thankful that you've called us to gather, to worship, to celebrate, to be renewed and refreshed and encouraged. We pray for all the Weaver family members, Lord and friends, that they will hear and receive and believe the good news of Jesus Christ today, that your Holy Spirit will go out before us all and keep us comfortable and cool. And Lord, for right now, in this very moment, we pray that our hearts and minds and our spirits would truly be one together in Christ, that we will give you praise, because you, Lord God, are worthy. You are our God. You're the love of our life the one who sustains us, the one who forgives our sins through Christ Jesus, who died on the cross and rose from the grave, that we too have eternal life, life now and forever. In Jesus' name we praise you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's sing. Let's all stand. Let's do what we are created to do and worship our Lord. That's what we're here to do today. praise your name among the nations. I praise your name with all my heart. I join my voice with all creation, giving you Everything and more. Hallelujah. Oh, 
creation giving you praise for who you are i praise your name among the nations i praise your name with all my heart i join my voice with all creation giving you love to see your face. Father, we're here to worship you. Father, you're the audience of one. We aren't here for a performance. We aren't here to be entertained. Lord, we are here to give you our hearts so that we can meet as one. And Father, we want to be useful. We want to be fruitful. 
And Lord, it starts right here by sitting at your feet and surrendering everything to you, Lord. Thank you, Father. And we just pray you receive our sacrifice, Father, as we worship you. And thank you for the grace that Jesus gives to make that, that possible. Thank you, Lord. I give you all my life. I'm letting it go, a living sacrifice. No longer my own, all I am is yours. All I am is yours. Take these hands, I know they're empty, but with you they can be used for beauty in your perfect plan. All I am is yours. Take these feet. I know they stumble, but you use the weak. You use the humble, so please use me. All I am is yours. I give you all my life. I'm letting it go. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you that we're here to give you our very selves. Lord God, I don't know, maybe we imagine we're here to give you other things, but ultimately, Lord God, you want us. You want our, our very being 
to be in step with your Holy Spirit, to live according to your word, to trust, Lord God, the truth that you've given us, and Lord, to rely on your grace and not our works, to know that we're saved by your love for us and the gift that Christ provided for us, dying willingly on the cross, even while we were still sinners, powerless to save ourselves and still are, but you saved us. You forgave our sins by the work of Christ for us. And that Christ rose from the grave, Lord God, assures us that this life isn't all that there is, that there is eternal life and a new heaven and new earth to come. And that's been true, Lord God, since your original creation, a place to live, a thriving place, a place with love, intimacy, relationship, close with you forever. Lord God, we thank you that you're with us and that we are with you this morning. We ask now that you touch our hearts with the power of your Holy Spirit and the truth of your word, that we would be transformed daily. We also want to lift up to you, Lord God, the horror that we know exists now in Lahaina, Hawaii. Um, you know all the details. You know how many have perished. You know how many are grieving and how many are struggling. Lord God, we ask that your Christian community there would rise up and that they would be a witness for Christ and a helping hand and with love in their hearts for the lost. We ask, Lord God, your favor upon that place. And also, Lord God, in Ukraine, so many people have died. God, we pray for peace there, justice. We pray for life. And we pray that the Christian community that is there would truly be a witness and a light there too. Thank you, Lord. And help us, despite... We don't have that calamity right in our face, but God, there's a calamity of faith around us. So many people are lost. We pray that you'll give us a heart like your heart beating for the lost. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Uh, the kids are free to head down the hallway now for Sunday school. If you're a guest this morning and you want to go with them, feel free to do just that. Um, Susie's right here, and uh, middle schoolers are also, and high schoolers are going to be down the hallway with Gabe as well. So we want to make sure you feel right at home. For those of us that are staying here in the sanctuary, we're going to be reading through Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. We're entering into a different portion of the book of Romans. Um, you might think that after a tremendous finish with Romans 8, about how nothing can separate us from the love of Christ and that our salvation is secured through the work and the love of Jesus for us, you might think that'd be a great place to jump to the 12th chapter where Paul says, therefore. And we get into, so what do we do with this? The activities, the things that we're expected to participate in and behave in. Um, he doesn't do that. There's this three-chapter, not a hiatus, but an important moment before he concludes his letter because the Christian community in Rome was struggling with unity amongst the Gentile Christians, the non-Jewish believers, and the Jewish Christians. And the Gentile Christians apparently outnumbered the Jewish Christians, and the Gentiles were feeling a little bit full of themselves, a little bit of a spiritual arrogance, you could say. And so Paul talks about Israel and God's plans and purposes and prophecies and the plan of salvation through faith in Christ, he talks about Israel now for three chapters. It's really not, though, about Israel. It's about God's faithfulness and God's plans through Israel and how the Gentiles, ourselves today, have benefited and how God is true to his promises 
and he hasn't proven faithless. So we're going to be entering into a different part of this book. It starts right here. This is an introduction to what Paul is producing for us in these chapters, and I think we'll find that it really points to the nature and the purpose and the plans of God through Israel. So if you've ever been curious about, so what's the big deal about Israel? It's not, again, about Israel exactly, but it's God's plans through Israel that's the big deal. And so we'll look at this and we'll see that that just comes to light for us. I'd like to begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we're coming to a, a portion of the, God, the good news that we have here in Romans. These chapters coming before us, Lord God, I pray that they will be enlightening for all of us as your spirit touches our hearts and minds, that we will grow in Christ and that we will truly be blessed and to realize the blessings that we have received through your witness and the privileges that the Jews shared that God has been shared with us today. We're grateful. And we thank you, Lord, for our salvation in Christ's work for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear now the words of the Lord. Paul writes this. He says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. I, um, I don't know how many of you have been to Israel. I've been blessed to have gone there twice uh, with the Jerusalem University College Pastor Parishioner Tours. Very educational and also exhausting. Um, but such an enlightening experience to see the land, to walk through what is current modern-day Jerusalem, and to get a picture in my mind of where things are and the proximity and the general look of the place, the desert, the city, all that kind of thing, and lots and lots of ruins there in that land. Um, so I've had at least a month's time there in that land, and I'm glad I have. If you ever get a chance to go, uh, I encourage you to do that. If you want a real education, contact the Jerusalem University College, and uh, you'll be as tired out but as blessed as I felt I was multiple times over. Oh, we're handing out the outlines. They were hiding in the office, I guess. I want to show you one of my favorite pictures here from that land. Can we show that picture? There we go. This is the best photo bomb I've ever seen in my entire life. I didn't even realize that this guy was in the foreground because what I was taking a picture of is there's Jenny giving us the thumbs up with her feet in the front, and that's Tim Dale with the bare feet behind her, and then Jack Seifert with the missing hairline there. Yeah, that's him with his back toward us. That's Jack, and uh, we were out in the Dead Sea floating around, and I don't know how anybody could possibly drown in that that sea because you float like a cork. It's even hard to swim. But uh, this guy really was funny, and I, I've kept that picture as a remembrance of that fun time we shared together. Israel is an interesting place. It's one country among 195 countries. And when you think about it, isn't Israel in the news a lot? 
but there's 195 countries. When's the last time you heard about Togo? Togo has the same population that Israel has, but I don't hear much about them. They're in Africa. Many of us probably think they're in the Pacific or something like that, but they're right there in Africa, and they're between a couple of countries, Ghana and Benin. And when's the last time you heard of Benin? Israel gets a lot of time and a lot of attention, and partly it's because of where it sits. Its neighbors call it the dagger in the heart of Islam. So let's look at the map. This is where Israel sits, Jordan, Egypt, Syria, Lebanon, and the, mo the north. And you can see where it's pointy at the bottom. That's what the Muslims sort of picture as like a dagger right in the heart of the Muslim world over there. So that's the emotional imagery that that map creates. Israel, though, today, you might imagine, is a very God-blessed state. I mean, in 1948, it came into being, and then 67 expanded its borders, including uh, Jerusalem itself, which is still, by the way, uh, overseen and administrated by Jordan. Um, the nation over there is interesting. It is one of the least religious nations on the planet. Seventy percent of those in a Gallup poll in 2015 said they weren't religious at all. Seventy percent. 20% of that 70% would say they're atheists or that God is inconsequential. So that's a, quite a surprise, isn't it, that 30% would consider themselves religious in that land that has so much space and attention in the scriptures and also so much in the news, right? So what's God doing through all of that? What's the big deal? Well, that's what Paul wants to talk about. He wants to talk not about the land as such, although that's part of God's promise to those people, but it's about really the faithfulness and the purposefulness and the saving work of God, using that chosen people to accomplish that very thing to bring us to Jesus Christ today. That's what Paul wants us to make sure we understand. Because the real issue is the Jewish community, Christian and non-Christian, hearing Paul's message about we're saved by faith, by the grace of God, through Christ and Christ alone, not by works. The law isn't going to get you there. Your religious expressions aren't going to get you there. Your membership isn't going to get you there. Your nationality, your race, nothing is going to get you there apart from God's gift to us, the gift of faith in our Savior Jesus Christ. Then the question became, so what's the big deal about Israel? Who cares anymore? Are God's promises to David and Abraham moot? Are we now nothing? Is God unfaithful? Can we trust God anymore? This is the result of the gospel at the time. And in the next verse, chapter, chapter 9, verse 6, I think Paul hits the, the center point of what he's concerned about. And he says this, and this is the next Sunday sermon. He says this, It is not as though God's word had failed. That's what's at risk. Has God's word failed has God caved? Did, did God blunder? Did God have to come up with plan B because his plan A failed? There was some confusion about this, and it really comes down to God's sovereignty and the fact that we can trust God and trust God completely in our lives today as well. God does not blunder. God does not fail. His word doesn't come up empty. God guarantees it, and that's what Paul wants them and for us to know today. The Gentile Christians in the church at the time were kind of feeling a little bit arrogant, and you'll say that later on in, the, in those chapters. 
He's concerned that they feel like they've got a one-upmanship. They outnumber the Jewish Christians. God is obviously doing a great work amongst the Gentile, non-Jewish world population. And the Jews themselves had pretty much neglected or rejected Christ. And it just seemed like God had lost his favor for them. They were no longer chosen, nothing special about them. We, we're no big deal anymore. The Gentiles are God's now new chosen special people. And it kind of went to their heads. And so Paul takes them down a notch. And later on in chapter 11, verses 1, or excuse me, 1, 8, 11, 18, he says, You do not support the root, the root supports you. In other words, the Jews aren't relying on you. You're relying on them and the work that God did through that group to bring you to saving faith today. So we're grateful for that. So why then weren't the Jews, the Israelis, the people of Israel, they called themselves, why weren't they flocking to Christ, the Messiah, the promised one? Clear back in Genesis 3, God said, through the seed of Eve, um, a Savior would come and stomp on the head of the serpent. In other words, destroy the serpent to wipe out the evil, death the consequence, okay? Why hadn't they flocked to Christ? With all the information, with all the privilege, with all the blessings, with all the insight, with the scriptures themselves, couldn't they tell that that was the Messiah, the Savior? The vast majority of Israel had rejected. And in their own minds, kind of like the birds of a feather flock together, we want to make sure that if the majority of us don't think it's Jesus as the Christ, then, well, he's not kind of a numbers thing. And the Gentiles then thought that they knew better. So here's what Romans 11, 1 and 11 says. Did God reject his people? And you get this by no means, which is the great Scott, no. He uses that a lot in Romans. No way, no how. God has not rejected his people. God's plan of salvation is the same. Old, New Testament, today, the message of salvation was always and only through faith and faith in the Messiah. It was a critical piece that they knew that they weren't saved by any effort of their own, but through the work of God for them. As Paul would say at the beginning of the book, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone, Jew and Gentile, who believes. First for the Jew, in, in sequence, and then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by what? By faith. By faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Right out of the Old Testament, there's nothing new here. It's old good news that's still good news and is good news today. God's plan did not change. So again, what's the big deal about Israel? Well, Paul makes three major points, and the, the subsequent sermons coming up will deal with those. But first of all, we want to know that God's promises are ensured by the very nature and plans of God for Jew and Gentiles alike. God knew that even though he chose Israel to be his chosen people, they weren't automatically saved. There was always an Israel within Israel, a remnant of believers they weren't all carte blanche believers. They were idolaters in many cases and in many times. Some of the prophets threw their hands in the air and gave up. How many prophets died trying to tell his chosen people the truth? That was not an occupation I would volunteer for. You didn't have a long life. You didn't usually retire out and die of an old age. 
This was very common. So God chose a people that were stiff-necked and ornery and difficult to work with, but God chose them, and that's what God saw through to the birth of Christ for everybody. So God blessed them to be a blessing to us. Then he talks about promises. He's going to talk about the plan of salvation. All these things come through for us. So what we're reading this morning is really an introduction to what's coming. So first of all, in your outlines, the first point you can write in there is this. Stay true to the truth of God. Stay true to the truth of God. And that may sound kind of funny to say that, but there were a lot of traditions at work at that time, and a lot of traditions get into our own lives today. Sometimes what we watch, what we listen to outside of church can impact our ethics, can impact our worldview, can impact our sense of salvation or worth or value or love. All kinds of things can impact and twist our thinking. Even our own sinful nature can twist the truth if we're not careful. So we have this speaking here where Paul says this, I speak the truth in Christ. He said, you can take it to the bank. What I'm telling you is absolutely true. And then he says, I'm not lying, which is interesting. He just said, I'm speaking the truth, and I'm not lying. You see, he's really just putting his foot down. I'm not kidding here. This is really what's right and true. My conscience, he says, confirms it in the Holy Spirit. Now, you might think that that's his own personal, subjective take on things. What you're missing, perhaps, is that he's Jewish at the core. He's a Jewish Christian. And in his Jewishness, you do not use God's name in vain. God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And when he says, my conscience is clear in the Holy Spirit, he's basically saying, as God is my witness, I'm telling the truth. He just called down the wrath of God upon himself, so to speak, if he was lying. In other words, he's saying, I'm accountable to God for everything I'm telling you. And I'm saying this very openly. That's the Jewish nature. And a Jewish Christian would have caught that immediately and said, wow, Paul laid it all on the line, didn't he? Yes, he did. The truth of God. Paul was very God conscious. The scriptures were the template that he held to the truth of God. What God taught, Paul accepted and embraced. He didn't try and twist it into his own making. He didn't try and make his life easier. He didn't want to get along with society so he wouldn't get beat up or abused or jailed. He didn't try and escape the persecutions that came for living and sharing the gospel of Christ. He says this to the Galatian church, am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? In other words, am I trying to make you naysayers at church happy with me? Or am I speaking the truth that God has revealed to us? Or am I trying to please people? Are you a people pleaser? Well, I kind of am because I want people to like me. How about you? I don't want people not to like me. That drives me crazy. It hurts my feelings. My love language is words of affirmation. I just can't stand criticism, but I know it's good. Right? It kind of hurts. That's the opposite of my language, right? but I embrace it. If it's healthy, good. Jenny's got her share of criticism, but I still know she loves me, right? Right? Isn't that a marriage? Isn't that life? Isn't that reality? Isn't that good? That's good, and I'm grateful for her. What would I do without her? Well, our usual answer is plenty. It probably wouldn't be great. It's all good. 
But what we want to recognize here is that Paul is saying, am I trying to please people? And it's a good, good stopping point for us to say, well, how am I doing? Am I trying to please people or God? What I say, what I believe, the ethics that I have, the life that I live, the values that I have, the things that I teach, am I just trying to make people happy and get along together at all costs, or am I putting God first? He says, if I was still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. That's so important to him and for all of us. Martin Luther, who risked his life in the Reformation, declaring that we're saved by faith. In fact, it was that earlier reading from chapter 1 that I read for you this morning that changed his life. He was a man that was tormented with thinking he had to have enough merit and worth and value and works to make God happy. And when he discovered that the Bible talked about God's grace, his free gift, and that faith in Jesus that saves us, it transformed him. And he couldn't go backwards. He just had to hang on to the truth. It, it changed his life. And he said this once. He said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. You can't do anything else. That's the truth. Rebecca Pippert, who wrote a book out of the salt shaker, said something really funny in her book. She said, don't be so open-minded your brain falls out. Isn't that the truth? Yes, open-minded learning, educating, engaging, challenging in your times of doubt or depression or whatever it might be. You, you, this is a time for growth and learning and structure. The roots go down deep in the winter, right? But don't be so open-minded your brain falls out. In other words, don't be so open-minded the Bible falls out of your brain. Put that good word in there, and you can trust God that it's the right word. I was telling the youth group uh, when Gabe was gone one time, uh, there was four of us that pitch in for him. It takes four of us to replace one person. And um, so I was teaching the lesson. I says, you know, it takes a lot of guts to be a Christian today. It does. We're not in the majority. We're not even in a country that pretends to be a majority. In fact, the, the number of Christians is diminishing, according to polls. But they're not talking about believers. They're talking about people who identify as Christian, but yet may not be Christians at all. Maybe mom and dad were, grandpa was, their dad was a pastor, whatever. It's, it's all there. I think that there's sort of a shaking out, but there's always a remnant amongst the wider church, right? And this is what we want to be. We want to be that faithful remnant who makes no compromise with the gospel. The good news is good news. And I know a lot of people are going to reject it. They have. They always will. The Jews did in Jesus' day. But we still have that good news to bring. And we don't want to slack up on that. When Jesus was talking to some Jews in John 8, he says this, to the Jews who had believed him, or in accordance with what he'd been telling them, he said, you know, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you'll know the truth. And the truth will what? Set you free. There's freedom. I don't know why it is. I guess I know why it is. People consider Christianity to be another works, another religion, another do-good behavior, legalism, whatever it is, you know, like we live by these rules. And if you look at the world's religions, they all have that. We all live by these rules. And we all have to do these things or we're not true to our religion. And then along comes the Christian faith who says we're not saved by the rules and regulations and legalisms. We're saved by an act of God on our behalf. We're very humble about that. 
It's by the grace of God through Christ Jesus that I'm saved. My sins are forgiven. What did I do? Nothing. What did God do? Everything. Wow, that is 100 degrees, 180 degrees rather, opposite of what all the worldviews are out there. And so when we share the good news of Jesus, they automatically think about rules and regulations and legalisms and all that. Religion, you could say. And we have to help them realize, no, we're not about that, although that's included. Yes, there's ethics and things, but what saves us? God. The work of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that brings to life our dead spirit and saves us from our sins to pointing us to Jesus. This is the, we give God all the credit so how do we know we're disciples? We follow Jesus. No compromises. We're not just students taking and leaving what we like and don't like. We are disciples. We embrace whatever Jesus taught us and the good news that's in his word. I want to be that person. How about you? Secondly, truly love and care about the lost. This is such a critical element for a church that's engaged in outreach evangelism and discipleship. Those are the three key words here. Outreach, being friendly, engaging, saying hi, relating as anybody could. Evangelism is bringing Jesus to the table, sharing the good news of Christ and the cross and the resurrection and all that. It's all there, and we'll do that this afternoon. And then discipleship, helping us learn and grow and rise up and mature in Christ and to know what it is to be a follower of Jesus, a disciple. This is what we're all about. This is what God asks us to be all about worldwide. But Paul, before he goes into all the theology, before he goes into the therefore, before he goes into the, the explanation of the gospel again, he, he shares his heart. And this is what he says in verses 2 through the beginning of verse 4. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. Who are those brothers and sisters? Those are my own race, the people of Israel. How much does God care about the Jewish community, as it was called then? How much did Paul really care about the lost? A tremendous amount. He's anguished. He's grieving. It really tortures him that, he, that they've, they're not coming to faith in Christ as readily as the Gentiles are, and it tears him up. He's the apostle to the Gentiles. Yes, that's his calling from God, but he hasn't forgotten the people of Israel as they called themselves, and he's one of them, and it hurts. And I can think of family members that it hurts me to this day that they have yet to come to faith in Jesus. And because of that desire in me, that longing that they come to know Christ, I'm praying for their salvation every single day. And I cannot stop until they cross that finish line. And if when I die someday they're still not believers, guess what? Whoever preaches at my funeral had better share the gospel or I'm going to come right back. <laughs> Fill that gap. This is, this is my longing. This is my passion. This is my heart. And uh, as Christine and the Missions Commission has shared before, who's your one? Who's got your heart? Who is it out there that you feel anguished about that really stirs your soul, that gets you to move? You know, evangelism doesn't work if you don't care, right? It doesn't work for me if I don't care. It doesn't work for you. The Holy Spirit does miracles despite us, but part of our ability to get out there and share the news is because we're moved 
to do that out of love. And that's what Paul says. In fact, Paul says something that nobody else says in the New Testament. He says, I wish that I could be the one hanging on the cross if that could save my people. Now, we all know that Paul couldn't be crucified for the forgiveness of anybody's sins because he himself is a sinner. He admits that earlier in the book, right? Things he does, he doesn't want to do, and the things he doesn't want to do, he does. And what a wretched man that I am. Then he gives God thanks for Jesus. He's saying, but if I could, I would. That's how much care and love and compassion and concern he has for the lost. And I was thinking about that. I, you can't really manufacture that in a sermon. You, you can't change people's hearts. Only the Word and the Spirit can do this. But you might ask yourself, well, how's my heart? Am I complacent, relaxed, chill? Oh, well, that's their thing, whatever they want, and, and it doesn't really bother you. Then I would suggest that we all start praying for that to really bother us, to really get under our skin and to not be so casual about someone's eternal fate in the hands of God. Without Jesus, there's trouble. So Paul's grieving, and he's grieving because, and you can pick this up as an innuendo, but it's there. He knows that without Jesus, God's chosen people are cut off from God. In fact, they are still cursed. Their sins are not forgiven. They're chosen, but that doesn't mean that they're saved. They're always saved by faith. And they don't, they don't have faith in Jesus. And Paul says, you know, you're, you're cursed. You're an anathema is the Greek word. You're an anathema to God. You're cut off from God. And I wish I could jump in there and save you, but I can't. And it hurts. But he is sharing his genuine love for them. And that's what we want to make sure that whoever we share Christ with, they know we really love them. And sometimes that means a slow walk. Sometimes that means they need to see our unconditional love over and over and over before they'll open up their hearts and say, all right, tell me about Jesus. Come on. I know you want to. Let's hear it. That's what my uh, brother-in-law did. We went on a cruise with mom, and uh, I thought, great. It'll be five or so days together. You can't get away, um, and my sister and all. And finally, on like the fourth day, sitting at the dinner table, or we were playing games, he looked right at me, and he says, all right, tell me about Jesus. Tell me about this gospel. I had not brought it up, but he was sweating it because I know he thought I would. And finally, he broke the ice before I did, and I just stepped right in. And he told me last year he'd become a Christian. Now, that wasn't when it happened on the boat. But, you know, baby steps, constancy, loving, you know, not trying to make somebody act like a Christian if they're not a Christian. Let them breathe, let them live, and then share the good news, and you'll find out that they are changed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word that you cannot do, but God can, and it's amazing. We just have to love people dearly. So the question that came to me was, how's my heart for the lost? How's your heart? If it's not there yet, if it's cool or cold or complacent or uncaring, then maybe it's time to start praying that God would put a fire in you that would ignite that passion for at least that one, that someone who you can connect with. That's why we sang the praise song, Give Me a Heart Like Your Heart, Beating for the Lost. That's what we want. Then lastly, Israel's privileges, and there are many, 
are ours in Christ as well. Verses 4b to 5. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory. Theirs the covenant, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced. This is the important part. There, from them it is traced the human ancestry of Christ. Who, by the way, this is really great. If you ever wondered if Jesus is God, well, look at what he said. Who is God? Any questions? Who is God over all? Forever praised. Amen. And by the way, if you wonder about translations and different translations, the grammar here in Greek, and I'm not going to go into all the details, but the grammar and the word order insists that the reference to Jesus being God does refer to Jesus Christ. Jesus is God. This is what Paul says right here. But more importantly than that, he says, look at all the privileges God's chosen people have received, and it just kills him that with all these privileges, they have yet to embrace Christ and any great number of people. They're, they're still lost. But he also knows, I think in a roundabout way, that this all applies to all of us as well in many ways. And through Christ really comes home to our hearts. And I want to look at these things just briefly. First of all, there's the adoption as sons. Now that can cause some confusion because earlier he said that by the work of God we are adopted. We're chosen and therefore saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. And we're adopted sons and daughters. We're truly a family. I preached on that many, many weeks ago and being adopted uh, myself and adopting both girls, that's always been a special place for me. It's never been automatic. It's a choosing of God, God's sovereignty, his choice that he would adopt us as his children. That's not automatic. Now, in this case, though, when he says that Israel has been adopted, he means the entire nation, not the individuals. He doesn't say the nation is saved, their sins are forgiven, but he's saying, I have chosen you as the instrument of a testimony to the world of who I am and what I'm about and what the world needs, a savior. Look at what you can see an example of that in the adoption piece there in Exodus 4.22. This is the first occurrence where it shows up. It says, then, says, then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel, as a whole, is my firstborn son. In other words, I've chosen Israel to be an instrument on earth for me. Then, of course, then there's the divine glory. Literally, it just means there's the glory in Greek, but divine is added to help us understand what it means. They're not glorious. They're still sinners. But the glory of God is there with them in that special way. Like in Romans 3, 9, he says, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. So where's the glory? Well, it's got to be God. Our glory lies ahead. He's referring to Old Testament, and that means the presence of God. Exodus 40, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, which was the portable tabernacle, the portable temple that traveled around with them, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. That's what Paul's referring to. They have such privilege that they would have that intimacy with God and that, that availability. That was so special. In Romans 8 9, the Spirit of God lives in you then, Paul says. So are we then the living tabernacles or the living temples of God? Yes. So not only are we adopted, chosen by God for salvation, we're also filled with the Holy Spirit as a consequence, and we now are filled with the glory of God. 
So we have been embraced that way as well. Then there's the covenants. There are six of them in the Old Testament. None of them could save you, forgive your sins. There were two that were unconditional, excuse me, two that were conditional. If you do this, you'll live. If you don't, you'll die. Those kinds of things. That was what God told Adam and Eve in the garden, and that's also what God told Moses on Mount Sinai. Those were conditional ones. Then there are four unconditional ones. Noah and the rainbow. Remember, not going to flood the world again. Abraham, you'll have many descendants. Nations will be blessed through you. Here we are today, the land and King David. There will always be a king to reign, and that we know as Jesus. But of those six, none of them can save you. None of them are the assurance of your salvation. In fact, they pointed out how sinful we are. But there was a seventh covenant that Jesus provided, and it's called the new covenant that we celebrate when we do communion once a, once a month here. It's the new covenant that guarantees our salvation, and it's all on the work of Jesus Christ, who died for us. That's the seventh and final covenant. So we enjoy that covenant as well. Then there's the law. The law included civil, ceremonial, and ethics. All that's repeated in the New Testament for us, the ethics, these are the pieces of the law that we still keep and we want to hold true to. So that's been a blessing for us to know what God's heart and mind and ethics are. We also have worship. At the time, the Jewish community before Christ, they had the temple, they had sacrifices, they had Levites, they had priests and everything like that. That all foreshadowed Christ, who is what our prophet, priest, and king. And here we are in worship. We're privileged to worship God here this morning. And then there's the promises. You might think, well, what is that? It's so generic, so, so nebulous. What does he mean by that? The clearest, probably the closest approximation is the promise of the coming Christ and the consequences, the promises. I'm going to read a couple of them from the book of Acts. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's a promise. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, even in Oregon City this morning, for all whom the Lord our God will what? Will call. The emphasis, again, is on the sovereign calling of God. Then also in Acts 13, we tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. If you take just those two pieces and pull them together, what do we learn? What, what are these special promises that God gave to Israel and they had not embraced? Well, first of all, Christ is the Messiah or Savior. Also, we have the forgiveness of sins through what Christ has done for us. We also receive the Holy Spirit as a promise of God through faith in Christ, and we're guaranteed the resurrection to come. That's a lot of promise. And the Jewish community who knew all this said, no, and by and large, to a great extent. But Christ makes all the difference, and Paul stayed true to the gospel. Then he mentions patriarchs. Those are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and it is through their line that we see the birth of Jesus, who is Christ, God over all, forever praised. Amen. You know, we don't have to be thankful for Israel alone. It is not the importance of Israel at the top. What's at the top is the importance of God's plan who chose Israel to use and work that plan through them 
it is through that people that God then shared that good news worldwide. The mission never changed. The evangelism never changed. The opportunities never changed. The world's reactions never changed. Paul says, I long for more of my brothers and sisters, my fellow people of Israel, to come to realize that these wonderful privileges are theirs in spades in Christ. And the Gentiles are embracing it. Come on, everybody, let's all be one family in Christ. That's where his heart beat for them, and his conscience was clear. He did the best he could to share the gospel. And the Holy Spirit's still at work today. You know, the, what's the big deal about Israel? I don't want to get us lost in Israel and become, you know, Israel files, you know, all about Israel and be enamored with Israel and all that kind of stuff. What we need to do is be enamored with God and be enamored with God's work through the people of Israel and to be grateful that God chose that people that we could be here today to worship and to know our living Savior, Jesus Christ. I am grateful, as Paul was grateful, for the people of Israel. I, my heart is broken that 70% of the people in that land today are irreligious. They don't care. But we'll see later on in the book, Paul says, someday all Israel will be saved. I don't know how that's going to happen, but Paul knows in faith that God is still at work amongst those people, and we still have a witness to them as we do the rest of the world. And we should thank God for that opportunity. The clear piece here, too, as we'll discover in these chapters, is God is sovereign. God will not let us down. God will not pull the rug out from under us. God is not going to invite us into heaven, and then we're going to stand before him and say, ha, you bought that? I was only kidding. It's all about how good you are, and you're not. Oh, no. That is not going to happen. Will we be raised from the dead? Did God promise? Yes. Will we have eternal life? Yes. Will there be a new heaven and a new earth? Yes. Will all Israel be saved? Yes. Don't know how that's going to work out. Maybe he's talking about the end. We'll get to that when we get to the later parts of these chapters. But aren't we glad that God had a plan? And aren't we glad that God has a plan? And aren't we glad that despite Israel's rejection of Christ and despite the orneriness and the stiff-necked stuff and all the stuff you can read about in the Old Testament, they're a tough nut. God chose a difficult bunch to work with, and sometimes I think the reason is because it could only be God that could do this. We owe everything to him, everything to the Lord. And I want us to just bow our heads now and give God thanks for his saving plan, his faithfulness, the truth. And if your heart has been kind of neutralized by the world around us, ask for a renewed passion for the lost, that one maybe that can come to mind this morning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you love us so much. Thankful for your patience, for your kindness, for your mercy and grace. We're thankful, God, that you've adopted us as your children, sons and daughters. 
that we could even call you Abba, Daddy. Lord, that's a tremendous privilege. And we ask, Lord God, that our hearts would be moved for the lost around us, Jew and Gentile alike. And we ask, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit continue to share that through us, the gospel. We know that the harvest is ready, the fields are ripe, Jesus said. There's just not enough workers out there in the field. Lord God, help us to be those workers. Open up our eyes for opportunities. Give us the intellect, the, the patience, the sensitivity to your Holy Spirit's leading that if we're to speak up, we will. And if we're going to take a longer approach, we will. But Lord God, we know that your Holy Spirit brings it home. When it's right, the timing is good, you'll do it. And so God, we lift up that one that's in our minds this morning, maybe more than one. And we ask that you bring them salvation, eternal life, love. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand. In the darkness we were waiting, without hope, without light, till from heaven you came running, there was mercy in your eyes. To fulfill the law and prophets, to a virgin came the word, from a throne of endless glory, to a cradle in the dirt. Freedom of mind. 
Would you join me in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this daily, daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I had to stumble there for a minute when I was thinking about his work being done on earth as it is in heaven because I thought of Lahaina right at that very moment. <laughs> and I pray that the Lord's good work takes place there in a mighty way, don't you? I do in here too. May the love of the Father and the sacrificial grace of Jesus and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit and all of God's very warm people could say, Amen. God bless you. Have a great week ahead. Uh, come on down to the fellowship hall and enjoy some goodies down there and some company together. Have a great week. God bless. Mm -hmm.